Welcome to Curve On To Get Radio. This is Gabe Hudson, and this is my podcast. Today on the show, we have someone a little bit different and a lot of bit special, and I think somebody that will make your hearts expand. Our special guest today is Mark Wynn. Now, Mark Wynn is the subject of a new documentary film called This Is Where I Learned Not To Sleep made by the award-winning filmmakers Ande Mayer and Kristen Kelly. But as I say, Mark Wynn is the subject of this film. So who is Mark Wynn? Well, he's a former police officer in Nashville who decades ago started the largest domestic violence unit in the country. Mark is also a survivor of domestic violence, as was his mother, as were his siblings. And the essence of his story is that he had a stepfather who committed horrible violence against them all in the state of Texas. And on one occasion, this stepfather knocked his mother out. She got back up. Mark cared for her a little bit. She grabbed a baseball bat, hit that man over the head, and Mark's family fled back to Nashville. And in the course of this film, Mark returns to that very house in Texas and revisits that trauma bravely and courageously. The other narrative strand that extends through the film is that Mark has spent the last 30 plus years of his life devoted to trying to make the world a safer place for children and women. He believes that men are at the, with their violence, have poisoned the wearing of our humanity. And so he is committed to the conversation amongst men, talking about the violence that they have suffered and in doing so, trying to stop the cycle. He has traveled to every state in America and other countries around the world, speaking to various law enforcement agencies about the need to address interpersonal violence. In addition to that, Mark's late wife, who we meet in the film, Valerie Coachella, started the Mary Parish Center 20 years ago in Nashville. Now, Mark's mother's name was Mary Parish, and the Mary Parish Center for 20 years now has helped over 10,000 survivors of domestic violence with long-term residence and care and safety in an effort to promote healing, autonomy, and hope. Mark Wayne's life story is the subject of the film, and I think you'll be mesmerized within minutes of hearing Mark Wayne speak and tell his story, hear the humility, the compassion, the wisdom in his voice. I have never met anyone exactly like Mark Wynn. One other note, at one point in the film, when he's addressing law enforcement agencies, he talks about the fact that he and his brother tried to poison his stepfather using bug spray and bug poison, but it was unsuccessful. And the reason I mentioned that is you will hear us reference that in our conversation. I want to thank Sarah Rousseau and Lacey Durham of Page One Media. If you care about the well-being of women and children and want to be reminded that good people abound out there, Please enjoy my conversation with Mark Wynn. I love the film. I thought it was really artfully done. It was emotionally powerful. You struck me as a, a very brave, courageous truth teller who was telling their truth, despite the fact that might not always be 
welcome information into society. Well, that's a great compliment, Dave. I think the first time that I ever talked about this as a grown man with yeah. or, or other men, that, that was a moment where I thought, I can't do this. I couraged through it, if you will, but there was a strong woman standing behind me saying, you got to talk about this. And she was exactly right after I told my history to the command staff of my police department in in the classroom. After I told it, that was it. The ice broke, and I thought, you know what? This is not a bad idea. I'd seen testimonials from, obviously, women survivors, but you know how men are. We don't, uh, we're not, we have all these weird things in our heads about being weak. So after that, it was like, okay, now I got to polish this. I've got to be able to deliver it because I'm not just telling the story. I'm trying to impact people because at that time, that was the early 80s. It, it was like nobody was talking about this unless you worked at a domestic violence shelter. To me, you come across as a remarkable storyteller. The way that you used humor in your presentation in the film, when you mention you and your brother filling the glass up with insect poison, you get that good laugh. And then you say, yeah, I think it's funny too, but if it had really worked, here's what would have happened. And then you give everybody this great insight into... What happens to families that come apart in the justice system? That was really powerful, the way that you did that. How has your storytelling or your ability to tell your story, how has it evolved? Nobody's ever asked me that question before. I was a reporter before I was a cop. I put my voice on the paper. It was a small-town newspaper, Daily Columbia Daily Herald in Columbia, Tennessee, six counties. I'm sorry, my dog was squeaking her toy over there. Oh, that's so cool. I was like, oh, is that a squeaky chair? No, the squeaky dog. I love dogs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I learned this down a message in a short, you know, when you're writing crime, you know, stories, you have to get the first paragraph. And I learned to do that. And when I got into policing, they allowed me to start teaching at at my academy. They didn't have anybody who taught domestic violence. Not many were talking about this in the very early 80s. And I just, it was trial and error. I just thought, these are adults. They aren't children. We've got to make it relative. And I knew all of the, the recruit trainings. I knew all of the older officers that I trained. There were survivors in those groups, but they never had divulged. And let me back up for a second. David, sure. Well, I did tell the story. Yeah. A couple of the chiefs, after I finished the class, the presentation, I said, look, I want to tell you who you hired and what my journey's been. A couple of the chiefs came up after class and said, we lived that same life. Wow. And I thought, you know, that, that's when I realized I'm not alone here. The, yeah. the survivors, the police departments across this country are filled with survivors. That's really interesting. I don't think that's anything that anybody talks about or knows about. Well, and it, I just got, that got reinforced over the years. I've, I've trained in all 50 states and you know, almost 20 other countries and I've had these personal conversations, and it's usually in the middle of a break of a class or it's the end of a day. And I'd also come up to me and say, I watched my father kill my mother when I was eight or nine. And it was just amazing to me that of all the people that I work with in the world of advocacy, the, the domestic violence advocates, they will readily tell you that they're survivors of sex assault or stalking or domestic violence. Men, not so much, but I know they're there. Yes. 
And so I knew I had to talk to them. And I'm not an academic. I'm more of a journeyman. I love and, it. I'm originally from Texas. Yeah. I lived in Raleigh, North Carolina. So I get your vibe. Your energy yeah. is very familiar. And yeah. I just love the things you're saying with that, you know, yeah. uh, but you consider yourself a journeyman. Well, you know, it, all my education and I, that graduated from the FBI Academy is all vocational. It's all the work that I do, the universities I've been to, the classes I've been to, the studies that I've done have all been to to apply the science in the right. as a police officer, as a detective, as a forensic investigator, as a supervisor. And then I, and then I started moving into sort of activism while I was in the police department. But I had to disguise it a bit because you right. can't be an activist in the police department. But you, what you can do is you can work with activists as an ally. And that's right. you know, what, what I did. So managed to take a complex issue and make it not only simple, but personal mm -hmm. to people around what our duties are. Why, why did you want to be someone who wanted to work in law enforcement? To tell me what was you were looking for. Did you, do you want to help people who can't help themselves or you want to drive fast and get free coffee? <laughs> right, right. And um, and maybe sometimes it's a combination. Who knows? You know, I was in the Marines a million years ago right. in San Antonio at this recon unit, and there were a lot of law enforcement people there. Right. I have a good buddy now who's a U.S. Marshal. I probably lean in a whatever camp somebody might put me in just by looking at my stats on paper. But I also have very much of like a open mind and the humanity of the Marines that I encounter. Right is one of the greatest life-changing forces I've ever encountered. And I love those people. And my dad, I did not experience what you did. I mean, that sounds of the highest level of concern. And I'm sorry that you went through that. You know, my dad, who I love, was physically abusive. I think he probably feels terrible about it. He, at one point he said, well, I don't know if this would have been abuse back in my day, but now I think it would have been. And in the Marines, I knew we were all dealing with that. And part of why we were there was to make ourselves strong so that someone couldn't hurt us again. Well, it's interesting how this circle's come around. Yeah, my brother ran away at 16. He joined the Marine Corps at 17. He went to Vietnam at 18. And he wow. was in 1st Marine Division, 1st Force Recon. Wow. Yeah, wow. And, and wounded, barely made it back in Vietnam, and then later became a police officer in Texas. My father, my natural father, not my stepfather, who my real father wasn't the abuser, was in the second Marines. Wow. He, he was wounded at Kwajalein. He was wounded at Tarawa. He was wounded at Iwo Jima. And he just barely made it back. He lost a lung at Iwo Jima. Yeah. But you know that battle well as a Marine. Yeah, we had to sing about it. <laughs> Fight. And when he got back, he got into policing and then became a judge. He was in law enforcement for almost 50 years himself. That's incredible. So we're, a, we're a cop and Marine family, and we're very proud of that. Yeah, I get yeah. that. Yeah. And I mean, there was so much about the film that was moving on an aesthetic level, just visually how it works, the way the narrative works. But I do think that you also, there is a tendency, particularly in our country right now, there's so much polarization. And I think that your truth-telling journey is 
moving counter to what people's expectations are. That was something I was very excited to bring to the listeners of my podcast. And your humanity just shines through in this film. It's a, how do you feel about the film? Can you tell me how it came to be? Like, how did that happen? Well, the filmmaker contacted me. I mean, I, I've been doing this work for a long time. I've been working for the Justice Department, the Civil Rights Division, the State Department. So, you know, word of mouth gets around, and, I, and people know me in this work. I started training for IECP, which is International Association of Chiefs of Police, in 1987. Wow. Okay. So, you know, you just do the work, and people say, hey, who does this work? Oh, yeah, that guy from Nashville, you know, Mark. Yeah. Um, and then the filmmakers heard that I was going to be down in Virginia. It was a, a Kirsten Kelly. She said, can we come down and watch? I said, yeah, sure. So I did a day-long training in, in Loudoun County, and she said, we want to film this. Or are you doing more? I said, yeah, I'm doing 60 to 70 site trainings a year around the country. Wow. Just follow along. And they, five years later, we had this film produced. And Damar and Kirsten are very good filmmakers. They do social issue documentaries. This was a different world for them. I mean, I brought them into the criminal justice world as a solution, not the entire solution, but as a solution to stopping interpersonal violence, stalking, sex assault, elder abuse. And they said, we've got a film now. And I've been training films before for the Justice Department, but they're all instructional. You know, here's how you do this, and here's how you prosecute this. But nothing that was this personal. And when it was finished, it was hard for me to watch at first. Sure. Mallory has since passed away. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. She seemed like in the film, her spirit is just so bright. Yeah, she was just the love of my life. South Philly Italian moved to Tennessee to go to work in victim services work. And we just, we fell in love when we first met. And, and then we built a career together. We trained for the State Department. If I'd had cameras with me when we trained, I, I had these memories of us being in a classroom in, in China, training Chinese police on how to do interviews with traumatized victims. It, and she was the, wow. she with the victim. And it was just, those kind of moments are incredible for me to remember her. But she started the Mary Perry Center, and I helped out a little bit on it. For our listeners, is the name of your mother. Yes. You have subsequently has served over 10,000 yeah. victims mm-hmm. of domestic abuse. And what it is, Gabe, it's interesting. There's, there's a couple of models out there. The emergency shelter is where victims come immediately after um, a crime has been committed, and it's voluntary. They can go, and, and they're all over the country. And it's 60, 90 days, kind of the limit. But transitional is the next move for victims if they're ready. It's at two years. It's assisted living where you don't have to pay any rent or utilities. You get therapeutic services, job training, things like dental services, because a lot of victims, their teeth are knocked out, and they can't move on in life unless they get medical and dental care, where you actually you're building the soul and the body up in two years. And it, my mother had passed away, and I'd said in the film, I wish there had been a Mary Parish Center for Mary Parish. So I've worked on both sides of this. I worked in the criminal justice side, and I still do. And I've also worked on the advocacy side, which has really given me a view from two fields that sometimes don't get along. Do you like, think those two fields can learn from one another, or what do you think they might have to offer one another? Well, I think for police, first, it is understanding limits. What do advocates do? What do legal aid attorneys do? What do therapists do? 
what is their limit? How much, and what do they know about us? They are, they're saving victims without a gun and a badge. I mean, they, right. and the advocates have been around for a long, long, long time. I, I had a conversation with an advocate. I do a lot of work in Minnesota and I was doing a training up there. And, you know, the, one of the first shelters started in 72, 73 was in, in Minnesota. It's just an unbelievable state. I, I, it was the first known domestic violence shelter. But before that, churches across Minnesota would find room for women who were on the run from violent men. So this goes back of decades. Right. Probably so, even more, right? Like well, centuries. It's a bit of an underground railroad with victims of domestic violence. So the police didn't know that history. And then the other part of it was, you know, telling police that if you really want to be victim-centered, and that's the what we strive to, to be. And victim-centered means the victim plays a part in their own decisions to get out. You have to know the advocates in the community. You have to know what they offer. So it may be the first time the victim has ever talked to anybody about relief from the pain and suffering, like a transportation or assistance, all that. You have to know who the advocates are and trust them. And the partnerships that are being built right now, Gabe, around the country are amazing. I, I'm watching police respond with advocates to hospital calls of sex assault advocates in the interview room with victims when the officer does interviews. That's incredibly uplifting and encouraging to hear. It is. And what it is, it's building partnerships, not necessarily to just arrest somebody and put them in jail. You can't arrest yourself out of this problem. There's got to be other options for the victim because some victims don't want the offender arrested. And I right. can we understand that for a lot of reasons. And first of all, they love the offender. That's not unusual. That's why they got together to begin with. Right. It takes a lot to convince a victim to say, yes, I'll testify against this person who did this to me. Police have to understand that. These aren't like other crime victims. Most right. crime victims say, yes, he stole my car. I want him prosecuted. This is different. They have children together. They have history together. They um, scary to go into the unknown. What you know is the most comfortable thing, even if that's terrible, maybe. The thing that I tell cops all the time is nobody understands fear better than you because you have to wear a gun to go to work every day. Right. So you know that feeling of fear. Think about that the next time you talk to a victim of sex assault or stalking or domestic violence. Think about their state of mind and the price they pay. For years in policing, we would tell these young cops, you know, you're going to save people, you're going to be the hero. You're going to go. But we failed to tell them that there can be a negative impact on your presence. Your, your police body could be dangerous for this victim. Yeah. And that's when the, you have to have a partnership with advocacy and say, look, she may be too afraid to talk to me, but I really would like for her to talk to you because leaving is not an event. It's a process. How would you say this field of activism has evolved? I know from the film, you were responsible for starting the first, what was the name of the department or program you started in Tennessee? Well, police departments historically have had specialties narcotics, traffic, homicide, burglary, robbery, for centuries, it seems. People go to those jobs because they want to do that particular kind of work. They have an aptitude for it. That's not necessarily true for crimes against women. We started to see some of the first domestic violence type units in the late 70s, early 80s. They were small units, Albuquerque, Honolulu, Los Angeles, New York had some model of a Unit, but we did have one here, and I was working in homicide, and 
we were buried 25 or 30 women every year killed in Nashville. And it was like we were just reacting. We weren't, there was no prevention to it. And I went to a class, as a young homicide detective, I went to a class taught by the FBI, and the instructor said, homicide's the only crime you can't prevent. And I sat there in the classroom, and I thought, wow, it sounds like we've given up. Um, And then when I started actually doing the work, talking to parents of murdered women, it occurred to me, and, and many of them told me the same story. My daughter called you. She reached out to you many times. And I had a mother tell me once, maybe she'd be alive if she had not called you. And when I heard that, I thought the community is screaming at us to stop this slaughter of women. Wow. So you just got this sense of just a din of noise about this that no one else at the time was dialing into in the community. It seemed like they were just resigned that, you know, this is a cynical statement for ages has been a, a saying when you work homicide, you know, our day begins when your day ends. And that was the sort of attitude about it. These were really good people that would do anything for anybody. Right. They just didn't see the value in prevention. And I did. Yeah. And I just started pressuring and pushing gently, you know, gentle pressure, relentlessly applied. Yep. My bosses. And finally, it took 10 years. I and a few others. We convinced our chief. Actually, to, to be exact on this, the mayor's wife approached me as she was a victim advocate, activist, and we had a long talk, and I said, we can save women's lives if your husband will order the chief to form a specialized unit in the police department. Within a day, I got a call to the chief's office, and he said, have you been talking to the mayor? And I, and I thought, I'm in trouble now. And I honestly said, no, chief, I would never, ever talk to the mayor. That would be You don't want to break that chain of command. Uh, you got to say, you know, the chain of command. I thought, I'm not going to do that. But he didn't ask me if I talked to the mayor's wife. Right. He said, put together a proposal. And I did. And within a month, we had started selecting personnel. And then by about six months later, we created the largest domestic violence investigative unit in U.S. history at 30 total personnel. Directive, intelligence-led, compassionate, empathetic, trauma-informed policing with a population who was eager to get our help. And we lowered our homicide rate from 25 to 30 down to about five in just a few years. That's incredible. I didn't let everybody have credit here. Also part of that was the cohesive nature of our city with like-minded people in the prosecutor's office and probation and the jail and the courts and the shelters. The community coordinated response is not just a catchphrase. It's a real thing where government and non-government entities come together for the same purpose of protecting victims of interpersonal violence. And we had that. And that really helped give us the foundation. Once that happened, we were off to the races. And it was amazing. With a lot of people in who had worked with the police department said, you're not going to get anybody to come to this unit because everybody hates to answer domestics. And I said, well, just wait. Just, we had people lining up to get in the wow. unit. And so, we had people that were seasoned homicide detectives, people who were, you know, 15 years hostage negotiators. They knew. They saw it, too. They thought, this is an opportunity where I cannot just do my work and feel good about it, but I can stop homicide. Right. And that was exactly what we did. And they're still doing that today. That's incredible. I love that story. In the film, you talked about one of the Thank you, from Chicago. I know you travel all over the country and you speak to myriad groups, oftentimes comprised of law enforcement. 
And one of the things you're emphasizing in the film is that any sort of strangulation or attempt to strangle is always a sign that there's maybe an imminent homicide. Like they were saying that for police officers, their radar should go off for their own safety, but you're also suggesting that that person, if someone has attempted to strangle them, they need to just get out. Is that something you learned in the process that sort of defied that earlier edict that someone told you that we can't stop a homicide? Well, not only me, I think around the country, the law enforcement were dealing with the not only the strangulation of homicides, which could be manual, hands, or ligature, it can be suffocation. There's all kinds of ways to kill a person through strangulation. But the part that was that I think got got our attention was the non-fatal, the ones where the victim survived. Right. And we would write choke in the report and we'd move on. It was considered a non-crime, basically. It was like a push or a shove or a slap. Right. And the folks at the San Diego DA's office, along with George McLean, a doctor in San Diego, said, we got to stop this. So they started looking at ways to train police. We followed their lead. And, and by the way, after that, every state now has a statute that says this is a felony when you put your hands around someone's throat and apply wow. protection. Okay. But there's been studies on this now that shows that, you know, the likelihood of a homicide for someone who's been strangled, it moves up to 750 to 800%. Johns Hopkins has done homicide studies and proven all this. And because of that, now we're getting first responders training, EMS, firefighters, advocates trained in the signs and symptoms of strangulation because it's not just a simple assault. And to give you the good example, what happened after the murder of George Floyd by the Minneapolis police officer who was convicted right. woke a lot of police departments up to the dangers of strangulation. Now, a lot of police departments, including mine, we're using the military method of a carotid artery restraint where you actually strangle someone to unconsciousness. And it was, it was only justified at certain levels of the tactic in policing. But once states started realizing you could kill someone doing this and you could only use it in policing if your life is absolutely in danger, then if it's that dangerous for police to use it, it's that dangerous for offenders to use as well. That was a big sort of, oh my God, we just missed all these crimes like strangulation and we're now catching up. We've missed a lot of crimes in policing around violence against women like witness intimidation and sex assault and stalking. These are all crimes that we've witnessed in the past, but now we're looking at them as interconnected, co-occurring course of conduct crimes. Right. For the last 20 years, that I've been crisscrossing the entire world talking about this. As a matter of fact, I was in Moldova training the police there, and they had me come in to, to look at their model of assessing threats. They have a, most police worldwide now have a lethality, danger, risk assessment to predict future violence from homicide. And we had a discussion in Moldova. They don't have the guns that we have here, but they have a lot of homicides, strangulation and homicide. And I asked them, and the value, in other words, what is the one thing that seems to be the biggest problem, the most lethal factor in domestic violence? And they all said strangulation. So in the United States, it's firearms. Second to that, it's strangulation. Right. Which tells you that we've just missed it because it's sometimes undetectable. I just love your lifetime of service 
to try to prevent something that you personally endured, domestic violence, witnessing violence against your mother by your stepfather, and you yourself and your siblings, I presume, enduring physical abuse. It seemed like in the film, you were grappling, I would say, courageously with this stuff, going back to the house that you were last in with your family in Texas until the stepfather hit your mother and she fell over and you cleaned her head a little bit and she stood up and had a knife. And then I believe she dropped the knife and picked up a baseball bat, a little league baseball bat of yours and hit that man over the head, knocked him out, which enabled you all to run from Texas. And I guess go back to Tennessee. How did it feel to go back to that home has the process of making the film yielded a deeper meditation on your experience or a different kind of meditation on your experience? You know, Dave, I, when they drove me to the front of this house, the filmmakers did, I, they didn't really tell me what they were doing. I trusted them. I, and I trust them now. Yeah. But um, this is the adult Mark cop talking now. Yep. Anytime you've got someone who suffered a trauma, it's asking a lot for them to walk back into that trauma. Right. I've investigated police shootings where officers have been wounded. I've talked to hostages after a hostage situation. It is just devastating to people. And to have them relive that is asking a lot. I, you know, I encourage men to talk about their experience, but I always make sure that I say, look, this is absolutely your choice and you're going to feel this pain again. Yep. I did. That day that we went back and we filmed, I felt that pain. But I wanted to feel that pain. And I'm glad that I did because never mind if you're a banker, you're a farmer, whatever your life is, if you lived in violence, you have that same experience. Uh, I want other men to challenge themselves to go back one more time into that moment of trauma so they can come back out and say, it's time for me to do something about this. Right. There's no greater reward in life than to save one. And you don't have to have a gun or badge to do this work. All you have to be is ready to help out with a, a shelter program or a fundraiser or mentoring a young man or talking to your son about how we feel about women, getting your church involved in a support group for women. That is the ingredients of, right. of life-saving. And I, if, if it takes them to go back just for a moment in that time that they put behind them, and I completely understand why you would, then that's my challenge to men. You take a deep breath, go back, look at what you saw, you know, gain some power out of it, yeah, it's therapeutic. And then it is therapeutic. I kind of know that. I, I just don't think I've had your experience, so I can't totally say. No. But I think it's good for people to hear you say that, yeah. like, you felt better as a result of that, even though it was challenging or painful. I, I, I did. I was restored in a way. Because I think when you're a child, you have no power. Oh, my gosh. That's why my brother and I tried to kill my stepfather. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So being powerless and then gaining power is a real gift. When we filmed it and then they decided to use it in the film, I, I watched it again. And I had that same sort of that shock in a way of watching the film. But we've shown it to my peers, law enforcement and others. And we've had moments where men have stood up and said, I'm a lieutenant with this agency, I'm an advocate here, and they said, I'll live your life 
it happened to me. I've never told anybody about it before. Yeah, but that, incredible. That's that, it, you know, Gabe, I, it, it, it's not a $30 million movie. If this film helps someone save one life, what value can you put on a life? So in that sense, I'm hoping that it'll be used in a lot of other areas. I've got friends who work in batter's intervention where they sit in a group of offenders and talk about their behavior. But there was oh. a scene from the film, right, with that? Yeah. Right. There was an intervention program that I went to in Albuquerque back in the 80s. Now, I've seen these groups all over the world, in Brazil and New York and all over the United States. And it's effective when a man who survived it, and the, the sad part of this is that 90% of these offenders have walked the same journey that I did. Oh, I always assume that. Yeah. I know my dad had his yeah. own issues. When you're a kid, you're powerless. I think there are stories you tell yourself to get through that and keep moving. So he would actually always speak highly of the parent that had done that to him. And it was only through therapy that it was revealed, oh, this parent actually was a terrorist to wow. a little boy out there in the Midwest. And so I always keep that in mind, you know. No, it's, you know, to gave the thing for me, and I've studied crime all my life. I'm still a student. The whole country is worried about the crime rates in rural America just as much as in urban and suburban America. Politics gets involved in this story sometimes, but the same everywhere you go. And what I've always wondered is all the time we talked about the war on drugs and all the other crimes that we deal with, Right, we're not going to the wellspring. The wellspring has been poisoned with violence. The very moment an adult puts a child in fear, yeah, they become armed robbers, they become rapists, they become drug dealers because I could have been that person. I saw my face on children all my career as a cop thinking, my God, this could have been me. And by the way, I saw my mother's face as well. And it just it motivated me to, to want to do more. But if we could focus the country on the home where the violence starts, we might really do something about the crime rate in the next generation. It's going to be generational. We've got to settle on this. The mental health field has told us you're not born violent. You're not born racist. You're not born hating someone. It's given to you as a lesson. And when you listen to today, these brain scientists like Bruce Perry down at Baylor, who's a child psychologist and urologist, he says it starts at, at 10 months and 11 months and 12 months when your child's brain is just starting to develop and it, it affects the growth of that brain. Right, right. And that's when the seed is planted and there's a high likelihood of drug abuse and suicide and all the things that police have to deal with. If we could just get to that, if we yeah. can stop exposing children to violence, we might have an opening here for the future for people to say, homicide? Wow. I can't imagine they had that many murders in the United States. I'm that hopeful. And, and the other thing, too, is I'm around good people all the time. It, it's right. just that's... You seem delighted in the company of myriad different kinds of people in that film. I know the media portrays the ills and politics of the day and it's a disaster here, disaster there. Right. But right now, in Scranton, Pennsylvania, there are advocates working with rape victims. In Topeka, Kansas, there's firefighters carrying someone out of a smoke-filled kitchen. These people don't care about politics. Their hearts yeah. are gigantic and they're doing the work. I mean, it's... We just don't seem to... That pop. doesn't make the news. So it, so the, it's people, it's depressing to people when they think, oh, we're in trouble. And quite the contrary. It's like the millennials cops I'm talking to today. 
I'm hearing all my generation, you know, baby boomers, all these millennials, they don't know what they're doing. They're going to screw everything up. And that's nowhere near what I'm watching. These are highly educated, very motivated. I don't see the homophobia, the racism, the bias, the stereotyping. I agree. I would say the millennials are, in, in my own experience, are very sensitive and very thoughtful and conscientious. And they have a strong moral compass. That's been my experience. They do. And I'm fully confident that they're going to make great mayors and chiefs and, you know, and podcasters and whatever they want to do. I'm happy uh, when I leave this work, um, I'm happy to turn it over to this next generation. They are super impressive. I imagine you are cultivating and helping grow talent to come up and take over the work you're doing to work in tandem with them. Is That's got to be the case, right? I, you know, I've, I've done my best to yep. mentor young men and young women, and I'm, I'm doing that today. I've got a pretty large group of people who I work with, and my advice to them is if you need me, I'm a phone call away. Wow, yeah. Because I know what they're doing. I know how they're impacting large groups of people. They're experimenting with new ideas on criminal justice and social justice and uh, anti-racism. All of that is it just, just fills me up. I'm getting as much out of it as they are, but I'm urging them to be courageous and have those courageous conversations with anybody that will listen because... If we bring all this out in the light of day, it's the best disinfectant, and they're doing a great job. I actually really enjoy working with young women, prosecutors, yeah. and police officers, and police chiefs who are moving into male-dominated professions, and they're doing a good job, but it's tough. It's tough for young women. Tough for them, right, to yeah. make headway? Well, it's, it's like we've watched it all happen in, in the military. Right. And look at what we've got now. We've got more women in the military than in law enforcement. I think our militaries are at 30%. Yeah. And they're, and they're in combat units. They're going through special forces classes. I just think for law enforcement, we need equity. I think we need as many women leading our 18,000 police departments as we have men. And when that happens, I think we're off, we're off to the races because... Uh, they bring expertise that men don't have, and we need right. it. So I'm I'm encouraging young women to do this work in all facets. So I, that that has been a real pleasure to me. Yeah, to be a mentor to people. I can imagine you have a great mentor ish energy. You seem wise but humble and very human. You know, That's I said your humanity wise. really does shine through. Uh, yeah, I wish I had you around during my promotional exams. And so there's going to be a limited release of the film on October 15th. Will you go somewhere and have some on-stage conversations, or what will that mean, the limited release of the film? You know, I, I think they're going to do the limited release online, but we are actually doing film festivals. We'll be at the Chagrin Falls Film Festival next month. We're doing a viewing at the Department of Justice for the heads of the Office of Violence Against Women. Wow. Um, yeah, we, we've got events set up around the country for state and local coalitions. Uh, so we're, we're just starting this process of sharing it. And yeah. what my hope is that there'll be different kinds of reasons to watch it. So if I'm a person who works in legal aid and I work with child survivors, I want my staff and my advocates to watch it. If I'm 
someone who working in intervention for offenders. I want the offenders to watch it. If I'm a shelter director in the, you know, Moab, Utah, I want them to use it as a fundraiser. I'm hoping that the conversations will go in a lot of different directions right. with this film. So, but October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. So okay. one of the reasons why we'll be showing it a lot around the country, and that's when the the limited release will happen as well. If somebody was listening to this and they are thinking about seeking help, if somebody was in a position, what would be a route they might go if they want to get out of a bad situation? Well, that's a serious question, and it's a big one. I think that everybody needs someone they can reach out to who will listen and be patient and love them and help them make the right decisions. Someone who will tell them, this is not your fault. One of the things I leave police officers with when I, I teach a class on what we should do when we encounter children at the scene of a domestic violence call. Great. To have that conversation with every child, to tell them not to get trapped in a small room, get to a phone call, 911, don't get between their mom and dad when the fight starts, that it's not their fault because they blame themselves and the offender makes them think it's their fault. So the starting point is to start to feel good about yourself and value yourself because you are babe. And then reach out to someone, and it could be somebody in law enforcement, I favor the criminal justice approach, but it's not the only approach. It could be a minister. Right. It could be a counselor. It could be a, a, a good friend at work. It could be an old friend you went to school with. Somebody who is patient enough to listen to you and be a sounding board to get you to the next levels. Because leaving is a process. Disclosure is a process. Right. And you have to feel safe in that disclosure. And you gain momentum. I'm still disclosing after all these years. I feel right. better about it every time I I talk about it. I'm, my body is safe now because I'm not around an offender. Right. Uh, but... Your body's not the only thing that's impacted. Your mind is as well, and your psyche and your emotional state. And to get out, it, it takes a lot of emotional labor, not just for the victim, but for the people who are their support. Right. Uh, so if there are hotlines, every community has a domestic violence hotline. And by the way, and, and as you can imagine, most of these services are staffed by survivors. So they, they know how to safety plan. They know how to prepare you when you want to leave. They give you the right advice that, you know, it's the most amazing thing. These folks don't make any money at all. And that, you know, I've known people work in crisis intervention for years. And if you ask them, you know, have you ever thought about how many lives you've saved in your life? And they go, no, not really. I haven't thought much about it. That tells you these people are unbelievable at what they do. They're courageous and they, they love this work and they will give you the right direction. But the big first message I always tell victims and survivors, don't blame yourself ever again. Stop. That's your starting point. And then from there, let's move the next level and let's get you to safety and, and without pain. Do you have three books that you recommend? George Lardner wrote about his daughter. I've read it several times. George Lardner was a Pulitzer Prize winning political writer from the Washington Post, and his daughter was murdered. Kristen, she was in college in Boston, and he, I think he's since passed away, and I had a job there to meet him, and when his daughter was murdered, he went up to, there's a father to get her body to bring her back to Washington. They started asking questions about her murder, 
and he wrote a book called The Stalking of Christian. And it's an amazing story of for a man to read. I think this for the for men listening to your podcast, yeah. for a man to read about another man's loss of his daughter to domestic violence and what he did with it. And he educated us about it. That, that would be one. The other thing, too, this is always, as, as well as being you know, um, an issue of crime and and protecting victims, it's also been about civil rights to me. Nothing yeah. more precious than individual civil rights. And I think we're now just starting to look at what that means when we talk about bias and racism. I'm reading My Grandmother's Hands right now, and it's a really incredible book about white bodies and black bodies and blue bodies. And right. it's, really, it's a really amazing book about we have to talk about historical trauma and when I say historical trauma, I mean the trauma of from African-Americans from the, from the beginning they were brought here. My family were slave owners, and I know my family's history very well. To the Jewish family who's is you know dealt with the Holocaust, and I would put the murder and the oppression and the violence against women historically in that same category. Absolutely. That yeah. It's the community of women who have experienced historical trauma. Anything that you can... Uh, find that will educate you on the history of trauma. And I think for law enforcement, we have to make sure our bodies are safe and sound. I mean, police are traumatized all the time. I'm sure. Yeah. If you understand your own trauma as a cop, then you can appreciate the trauma of a domestic violence victim. Emotional Survival for Police by Gil Martin is a book that I recommend. Uh, I Love a Cop is another great book written on law enforcement. I think sometimes police, if they try to separate themselves from the public because they just see crime all the time. Right. But we're doing a lot of work now in officer wellness around the country because suicide rates are fairly high in policing. And I think if we could get police to see the levels of trauma from domestic and sexual violence victims and compare that to our trauma, then we are better at what we do. Trauma is trauma. It doesn't care who you are. Any Anything on the neurobiology of trauma uh, is is uh, is a topic that I would recommend the future cops, the future prosecutors, the future judges to to read. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. We have an epidemic of veterans committing suicide, and it's yeah. really heartbreaking. And no one seems to know how to get a handle on that. That's twenty or twenty-two today. The last number I heard. I am encouraged, though, Gabe, I, because the other people that I work with are working in wellness now around the country. And okay. The military, especially, I've been on I've been on bases to do trainings, and I met a lot of the advocacy that the military is bringing on to base now. Right, hiring counselors, police departments are you know they've got early warning systems now for stressors for cops. In the past, we had an officer in trouble. There was no remedy. I mean, it was like we were we questioned their strength, and it was horrible. Right. Right. Oh, we, we would have a meeting and our doctor would come, Dr. Jack Daniels, you know, <laughs> Jack Daniels. And that's how he solved it. That didn't solve anything. It just made it worse. Right. I've so, had that doctor a couple of times. Yeah. Most folks have been in combat yeah. or, or have lived through traumas have, have visited with Dr. Daniels. And I don't want to get in trouble with folks down in Lynchburg, but that's not a medication that you want to take. But the fact is that we're acknowledged it, and I feel so, so sorry for our military because I've just watched them 
I've got friends who are deployed in combat, they come back, and then a, and a week later, they're riding around the patrol car. So, yeah. they, wow, it's like this really yeah. is stretching the the fabric of our military interplace to the limits we've never seen before. I think you'll agree with that. We've just been one yeah. the battle on the war against terrorism. I'm always sympathetic to the boots on the ground. And obviously, I have problems with the higher-ups in the Pentagon who are making those decisions that are profiting off of the war machinery that's being used. But we've never had so many combat veterans in the States, not since Vietnam. It's a really important thing for people to think about because a lot of what people did in Iraq and was stand around with M16s in society or in whatever they use now. That's a big deal that we have a lot of combat vet in America. And I don't think people are thinking about that. No, let me tell you, I talk to officers a lot about this, and we're talking about patrol officers in cities and counties around the country that, that a month or two earlier got the Bronze Star. Wow. And the Total Star. Yeah. And are recovering from the Purple Heart. They're changing uniforms, and they're sitting in a patrol car right now in Montana and Wyoming and, and Oregon. It's like these young people are just absolutely amazing. I remember my brother was a Vietnam vet. He came back here with the work in law enforcement, and a lot of vets did. When I got on the police department, we still had Korean War veterans on the Nashville Police Department. But it wasn't everybody. There just seems to be a lot of combat veterans protecting us today. It makes it natural. I know when I got after, left after duty, went to my reserve unit, there were a lot of law enforcement there. And it just made a lot of sense to me. The overlap of wearing the uniform, having orders and a firearm. And you're really well trained. Like The proliferation of AR-15s is enormously alarming to me. They used to fire the equivalent of that weapon in the Marines, but we had to take weeks of boring classes and, and do so much training before you got to have one live fire round. And here, like an 18-year-old could just buy it over the counter or something. I spent 15 years on our SWAT team here in Nashville, and I watched the proliferation of heavy military-style weapons. They started coming out of China back in the mid-'80s. And then the United States saw profit in it, or the assault weapons ban lapsed. And it is just unbelievable. And the weaponry defeats standard issue body armor on the street for officers. So the roll calls I've done with Chicago police, if people could see what's happening, I'll give you a quick example that one of the precincts doing roll call late one night and the detail was coming in for the roll call, which was about 30. It was about a, a group of about 30 officers. Before they hit the street, roll call is 10, 15 minutes. You get your assignment, you pick up your equipment, you talk to your sergeant. Right. And watch these officers. Compared to my day when I was a patrol officer, they came in with heavy tack armor, the right. patrol officers. They all had um, an automatic weapon, a semi-automatic handgun, multiple rounds. They had an assault rifle. They had body cameras. They were decked out in complete what I would have decked out in to respond to a hostage situation back in the 80s and 90s just to do an eight-hour regular day of patrol. Wow. It, it makes and, sense. I mean, because there's so many of those AR-15-style things on the streets. It's so easy to get. And for some unknown reason, there's this weird love affair for a lot of men in this country with these heavy weapons that I never saw when I was a kid. Right. I never saw in the early years of my policing. Right. But, there and I think a lot of that's marketed in to sell. Hollywood promotes it a lot. 
there's no common sense to all of it. I was training police in Turkey and Istanbul with their academy. This has been maybe eight years ago. And, you know, I was talking about interpersonal violence and sex assault. I mean, I was covering the gamut. Then we did questions and answers. And one of these Turkish police officers said, Mark, I'm not trying to embarrass you and not calling you out, but why do you kill each other so much in the United States? And I had to say, you know, you're asking the question that I've asked all my career. And I think communities are asking the same thing. We're a country that's lost sight of human rights versus your rights to carry a weapon. Right. And, and we haven't really had a serious conversation about it yet. I don't think law enforcement's really engaged in this conversation. I'm hoping that law enforcement leaders who a lot of the conservative America listens to will make this a, a top priority. I mean, I, the, the the shooting in Uvalde is still... Oh, I still think about it. You know, that war, the little girl who had to pretend, you know, just the wars. I, I, I tell you, I, uh, I had a good friend that was with the Connecticut State Police who was there at Sandy Hook, and the, he was a he was a combat veteran on top yeah. of being a cop. And he said, Mark, you just, I can't even, I can't even describe it to anybody. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we've got to, we've, we've got to do some soul searching about what is it we're doing here? Right. Um, of putting the public and these young cops every day on the street in danger of, of being killed by a gun that it's only designed for one thing. Yeah. To that's, that's just destroy right. humans. I think about when I went to school, when you went to school, I never really thought about shooter drills or having to conceive of my education in the context of possible bullets. It's just insane what we're doing to the imagination of these young kids that just are trying to go to school. And there may be hope when they become adults that they say, we're not going to carry your baggage anymore. Right, um, right. We're, we're done. Yeah. I, that's That's my hope. Uh, the Australians did it. They they got they they had a mass shooting in Tasmania. Yep. And after that, they said we're done. The, yeah. the Brits they went through the same thing. They had I think it was um, in Yorkshire um, or something. One of those small villages where you know a dozen or more people were killed. They said I know we yeah. had enough of this. Um, I don't know for there yet. I mean, I, you know, Canada has the equivalent number of weapons. They don't have the mass shootings that, that we've had, even though they've had some. Yeah, they don't have the same issues that we've had. There's a culture issue here, I think. Yeah, we we've got to. One day the table would be big enough for a lot of us to sit at and say, "Let's come up with a serious remedy for this." Yeah. Well, I love the optimism, the hard won optimism. You know, you're out there pounding the pavement all across the country, all across the world. So, I take great store in that like that positive energy you have, because I think it's so easy for all of us who are at home looking at the internet, looking at the stories that are being spun out to conceive of the larger world as something that's not necessarily when you get out there. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think this is a great country. Uh, and when I meet people who sit in a classroom or invite me into the courtroom or invite me to their shelter and they're proud to talk about their accomplishments and how many people they helped and how they all work together. It's like, I want more. The older you get, the slower you go, but I am not finished. The best drug you can ever have just to, to, to listen and feel somebody else's optimism 
yeah. about their life and the community they live in. It was a huge honor to talk to you, and I'm very grateful to you for your service in uniform, but your service out of uniform, what you're doing and the example that you're setting. It's inspiring. Thank you, Gabe. We've got to get the word out. We have to wake up the men. They're waiting for the message. Anytime you and I talk about this topic, that's a great way to do it. So thank you for caring, and I really appreciate your help with this work. Okay, so that was amazing, right? How about Mark Wynn? So now you can find a link in the show notes to see that film. If you're in the media and you want to write about this film, which I think you really should, it's an astonishing of work, really unforgettable and moving, strangely uplifting. Be in touch with the folks at Page One Media. And I put a link for the Mary Parish Center, which is named, as you know, after Mark Wynn's mother. Also put information in their hotline that you can call if you know somebody that is in trouble or wants to get out of a not good situation. So, Now, what you're about to experience is what I would call a Roman candle of podcast episodes. We're going to have one right after the other, after the other coming for the next several days with astonishing guests and astonishing conversations. I just wanted to give you that heads up. I didn't want you to think when you start seeing a bunch of these episodes pop up, you're like, has Gabe lost his mind? No, Gabe is happily in control of his mind. I just learned that I do not like to sit on conversations. And I will tell you, in a previous experience I had where I was making a podcast, when I was having to work with other people, and this is no shade against them, it's just the way things were, I had to do these conversations and then they would sit for months before they could be released. And that to me is a kind of horror. So whenever I finish a podcast episode, I am so excited about the conversation that I'm just going to release it to you. So that's going to be the way this works. And I hope you understand that there is a freshness to these conversations and that every time you receive an episode from me, I am super effing excited about that episode. And I can't wait to get it to you. That's why I'm sending it to you so quickly. I'm not going to hang back and try to be all cool and be like, this is the day that I release it once a week or whatever. No, 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 no. I think podcasts are not meant to be done that way. Anyway, I look forward to seeing you next time. Stay safe out there, people. Peace.